Hi, I'm Joanne Murphy. Welcome to Try Talking Sport, a podium podcast for athletes, adventurers, and endurance enthusiasts. Welcome to episode 12 of Try Talking Sport. In this show, I am joined by former professional rugby player Damien Brown from Galway, who now takes extreme adventure challenges in his stride. Playing professional rugby for 16 years, retiring at the age of 35, he set himself some ambitious adventures to achieve before turning 40. In this episode, we chat about Damien's life as a professional rugby player, his completion of the Marathon de Sable in 2016, and his rowing of the Atlantic in 2017. He is currently undertaking the challenge to complete the seven summits of the world, with just two of these left to complete in 2020. Setting big scary goals and devising his own training plans to complete them, there are some fabulous nuggets and insights into how his mindset, determination, resilience and attitude have been central to his success as an athlete and adventurer. Damien, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Great you could join us this morning, bright and early. You have been on one hell of an adventure since I spoke with you last back in 2017 before you set off on your Atlantic rowing adventure crossing the ocean. I want you to tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've been up to since that time, which seems like so long ago. Uh, Morning, Joanne. Thanks for having me. I suppose the best place for me to start is that... um, well, I'm born and bred here in Galway, the west of Ireland, and um, I went to school in the Bish in town, and I was lucky enough to come out of the Bish um, in 1998 and straight into professional rugby. That wouldn't really happen nowadays, but because at that time there just wasn't a whole lot of depth and rugby was only professional for three or four years, there wasn't many players around really and I suppose they saw this big lump of a young fella from Renmore and I kind of got thrown in at the deep end and fast tracked and um, you know very lucky and privileged to do that for the next 16 years after that I went on a bit of a journey um, even in my rugby career um, played here for Connacht for five years uh, signed for Northampton Saints in England played there for four years uh, amazing club amazing history and uh after that, I moved out to France for three years for a club called Brief. Um, loved that experience, although the rugby um, or the day-to-day rugby environment could, was very frustrating at times. But the the experience of living in France, new learning a new language, um, and I suppose just uh, embracing a new culture was really cool and one I really enjoyed. Uh, came back and played two years in Leinster, involved in a. a an amazing group of not only players but coaches, strength conditioning staff, medical staff um, during a very successful time for them and then um, unfortunately had a big shoulder injury there that um, ended up meaning that I lost my contract and um, went searching again for a new club and ended up out in France again and finished up in France in a club called Oyana in the top 14. A really small club um, uh, kind of on a very small budget, a town of like 22,000 people, uh, 15,000 of those who went to the games on a Friday and Saturday. So basically the whole town is obsessed with rugby. Um, and um, yeah, two good years out there. But again, unfortunately, I was like on my 16th year professionally at that stage and my body was just hanging in there, to be honest. I'd, you know, play a game on a Saturday and I wouldn't train again till a Wednesday. That sort of kind of uh, state um, took so long to recover and um, ended up getting a knee injury that just couldn't overcome um, and retired in 2015. Um, 
and then to kind of fast forward a little bit, uh, I always had a plan after rugby that there were certain things I wanted to do in my life. So um, I suppose I've always been a fan of um, goals or maybe go very goal orientated or even institutionalized by the, the kind of goal setting nature of rugby. Um, and I uh, made a, I kind of reverted back to some of my goal lists, you know, one year, five year lifetime goals. And I put together a new list and it was basically entitled Before I'm 40, I Will. And there was... Um, seven six or seven different endings to that sentence and um the first one of those that i decided to um focus on was the mountain de sable which was um uh it's a 250 well my year was a 257 kilometer ultra um foot race across the sahara desert over six days so kind of the the equivalent of six marathons in six days self-supported carrying everything you need on your own back to survive um, uh, that period and then I completed that and then I when I saw you to getting back to where we started when I saw you in 2017 I had committed to the second um, uh, sentence of that you know before I'm 40 I will and that was to row across the Atlantic I noticed the way you say sentence and not bucket list yeah I don't really see it as I never really saw it as a bucket list as such because I do have other kind of lifetime goals around that that aren't on that list, you know. Mm. So it's kind of just for this period. But I retired at 35 years old and I kind of gave myself four, five years till I was 40 to um, do these things that I was absolutely um, fascinated by. And um, I saw a lot of purpose in them for me. So, um, so you went from rugby to running, mm. to rowing. And now, I mean, you must class yourself as like a serious adventurer because the seven summits is your next big challenge. I, I'm highly uncomfortable with the <laughs> label. Um, <laughs> but uh, I understand that um, there's a game to be played in a, certain, um, in a certain way around this sort of stuff. So I do kind of reluctantly take the label of adventure but yeah I, you know for me the whole purpose behind these things are, are more like if you think about you know your life in general and at some stage you're going to look back on it and what have you done and what have you completed that are important to you you know so so these things bring great purpose for me um i want to look back and go you know that was I gave it my best shot. That was pretty cool. I did some amazing things, saw some incredible parts of the world. Um, you know, wasn't I was brave enough to kind of put myself into situations that scared me. So um, yeah, these things. You know, my my fascination and my um, passion behind them came through rugby. You know, learning. You know, I was never the fittest guy, but I always worked really hard and I felt I worked really hard um, at my game and getting better. And the harder I worked and the more I put into it, the better I got. And that kind of um, cycle is quite addictive, you know. Um, so as I was going through rugby, I was discovering, you know, looking for ways that other people were doing that outside of rugby in different environments. And, you know, that's where I picked up the Mountain de Sable. I saw a documentary by the Trio Donovan brothers here mm -hmm. in Galway, Richard and his, his two brothers who did it. Um, I was still, I was still playing McConnacht at the time. And I said, oh, someday I'm going to do that. It just really appealed. And the same with the, uh, the Atlantic Row. I read a book called The Crossing by James Cracknell and Ben Fogel in 2006. And I knew as much misery as they poured in 
into every page. I was like, this is for me, like, you know, the the adventure and the extremes and the challenge of it all uh, just really appealed to that kind of person who I was becoming, who was learning that there was amazing rewards from challenging themselves. And and how do you prepare? Like, how do you, I know you, you know your body inside out, you know how to maximise the potential of your body to deal with injury, to deal with fueling it, recovery, everything. But how do you go from playing rugby at such a high level and then turning yourself into a runner. I mean, you are a big guy. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're a big player. Um, how do you turn yourself into somebody who can sustain running six marathons in six days? But not only that, but spend, was it 66 days, out, 63 days, six hours and 25 minutes on the water for the mm. Atlantic Row? So my big advantage when it comes to all these things is that I've been preparing my body and my mind um, for 16 years in a very, very, very um, intense and demanding environment, you know. So I've I've learned to um, understand it very well. And I've been very lucky with the people I've been surrounded by as well. Obviously, these guys are, you know, world, world class in some cases. So, you know, I picked up a lot from them and I picked up a lot from watching other guys and what they do, um, guys I respect. So um, when I came out of it, that was um, something that I was really um, comfortable doing myself. So um, I suppose the question you're trying to you're asking is, or the the answer to the question you're asking is, you have to be fit for purpose, right? Um, now. I have to take into account hugely my profile and my body's profile and what it's been through and the injuries I've had and the compensations I have due to uh, playing rugby for 16 years. So um, when we, if we take the Martin Disabla, for example, um, there's no way I could have gone down a um, program of an ultra running um, preparation phase because I'm a hundred and well, I walk around roughly 120 kilos, so um, I wouldn't have even made the start line. And if I did, I would have been a shell of the man and I would have given myself no chance, right, to to um, have any um, chance of finishing what I wanted to do or achieving what I wanted to do. So I, I have to kind of almost... Um, fabricate a program around that you know so believe it or not <laughs> okay so what do we believe it or not I actually the longest I ran in my preparation for the mountain this Abla without stopping in my prep was two kilometers <laughs> now that that seems absolutely bananas right um but there's other ways to build so you basically what you're trying to do in any kind of program especially endurance is just build volume right there's other ways to do that you know you don't have to do it in long blocks you can shorten the actual work pace or the work piece and and um, increase the intensity but build your volume that way so i just did a lot of interval running because i run much better i won't run much more fluidly at a, a um what would you say a faster a, pace a faster pace exactly yeah so if i was just plodding along building my volume through kind of slow pieces um i just would have loaded up all those joints that were already really compromised you know i have no cartilage in either knee basically you know i have issues with my hips and all that just from rugby just bat absolutely batters you you know the french call it an abattoir you know <laughs> a boucherie but, sorry an abattoir so, how, so how did you how did you create your program then i mean it seems it's absolutely insane that you would run six marathons in six days and the longest run you would do is two two kilometers i actually would love to know what your training program looks like um so i reverse engineered 
from the start, uh, sorry, from the from the day I wanted to stand on the start line right back to the point I was at. If I remember correctly, with the MDS, it was something like 189 days. It was like six months or seven months or something like that before I, um, when I actually started my program. And because it was coming off a knee injury, from rugby and I, I still was I was only six months retired at this stage so I was still unsure I hadn't run in six months I was still unsure if my knee could sustain any um, any uh, what would you say um, load through it so my first session was just up on the pitches in Renmore I basically travelled for six months after I finished and then um, came back and then started preparations and I just went up to the pitches in Renmore and I was just testing out my knee so all I did was a few strides to like 22 metre line or the 25 on the on the GA pitches there um, and just just to see and I just started building it up slowly and building my volume volume and then when I was pretty confident that it was in a good place you know I'd lost quite a bit of weight at that stage as well uh, well a little bit of weight from rugby so I was you know whatever 116 or 17 kilos um, but I did a lot of off-heat conditioning to complement the um, the the running piece and then I did a so I did a lot of work on the ergometer on the watt bike and on the um a thing called a um airdyne or a um aerosol bike um and then I did a lot of strength work around that as well you know resistance work in the gym so so basically on upper and lower body yeah across the, yeah. Like the whole body conditioning did, kind of program yeah the upper body stuff was basically just to give my lower body a break at times and to keep doing some sort of training you know so. I think I was working in nine day blocks uh, for the, the the vast majority of that program, and um, I'd only run every nine days, believe it or not. Yeah, so now we have to take into account my ambition here as well. I wasn't going to win the Mountain Des Sable, you know. So it, it, like that program obviously would have been, you know terrible if I was going to actually win it I was just going to complete it and coming from where I was and my profile you know, um, this program worked really well you know so when I got to the start line I was in really strong mental and physical condition you know there was no wear and tear I'd peaked if you get me and I felt that that was my best chance of completing the Mountain Des Sables. Plus you've also had 16 years of training under your belt as well as, an, as a professional athlete so that has to stand for something even though you only ran 2k as your as your longest run I mean you knew your body you knew what would work you knew what wouldn't work. Exactly yeah you know um, I was <laughs> very conscious that like at the end of my career you know, I suppose that you've been running around pitches for that long, you know, every day and you, you realize that like it's actually having a detrimental effect all that running just because I don't I'm not moving very well anymore. I'm so stiff in certain areas, you know, um, that it's that all that kind of, um, uh, what would you say, all that load and pressure has been dumped somewhere into a joint where it should be more than likely been absorbed by a muscle just because, you know, you think about your ankle, mo- everything's so important in the chain, right, right up from, you know, ankle mobility, hip mobility, thoracic spine. So uh, mine was just all stiff because like if you think of 16 years of rugby, just constantly hammering each other, constantly, you know, every day in training, in the gym, the poundages you're lifting, everything just becomes, you become really, really stiff. So by the end of it, I was running really poorly. So I was very aware as well that, you know, I, I would have, 
to have to do the Martin de Sable things would have to change I, I just couldn't run too much if that, that makes any and, sense and to how people. did you recover between the sessions then because you're still obviously working your body very hard so were you getting like a regular sports massage were you going for physio how were you minding your body and protecting it mm. uh, other than not running how were you protecting it physically yeah so I do a lot of work around that sort of stuff so I think my re- your ready to train period before you train is really important people might call it a warm up I call it ready to train and then your future prep or your warm down so thinking about what's next so putting putting time into um, when you're finished a session I um, again I call it future prep because I'm looking forward to the next session and what can be kind of um, opened up and what can be the compensation taken away from what you just finished um, to give yourself um, the best window to get the most out of the next training session so those two periods are really important and then around that I'm a big fan of colds you know ice baths and the ocean and getting into the ocean um, now I I will admit that um, there's only certain times of the year that the ocean is cold enough to uh, really have a um, quality effect on your recovery. But at the same time, I find it really good mentally. So I'm always in and out of the ocean. Um, Ice baths are good. And then, yeah, I'd see a guy kind of, I suppose whenever I felt like I needed to see him because now that I'm not a professional rugby player I have to pay for that sort of stuff <laughs> <laughs> so I wasn't uh, overusing the uh, go down to Kevin Craddock down in um, Craddock Performance in Lisbon who I'd know for years and he'd get stuck into me you know and I needed that at times again coming back to kind of what my body's been through and the state it's in now So to go from April 2016 for the Marathon de Sable to then decide that you were going to give yourself 18 months to be on the start line for the Talisker Whiskey Challenge. How did you change from being a runner? If we can, yeah, we can Mm. call you a runner. Well, Mm. you you completed it. You know, you're still, you're an athlete. (laughs) At the end of it all, you're still an athlete. Labels or no labels. Um, How did you then transfer your skill set, your mindset, your body, everything into rowing? I was a lot happier to ditch the ro- running, I must say, um, and just kind of concentrate everything on um, off-feet conditioning and strength work. Uh, again, I, I, the same process again, you know, I you start, I reverse engineer right from the start and I, I know exactly that it was 588 days before uh, I was meant to take to the start line of the Talisker row that I started my prep and... Um, I just break it down into blocks. I think, I can't remember what the first block was. It was probably something like six months or something. And then I break that down into blocks of eight weeks uh, and then start kind of put together a program. But uh, um, it was a really long period to try and prepare for one thing and to keep um, my kind of focus and I suppose, what would you say, intensity as high as it I wanted it to be or I would demand of myself. And, and had it, you rode at all previously? Uh, I went out with uh, my only rowing experience was I went out one day with Gav Hennigan who rode the, the Atlantic, Atlantic the year before me before. I went to, out with him on the boat um, and that was it um, I'd never rowed but you know ocean rowing is very different to river rowing and Olympic rowing in that like one of them is incredibly technical and skilled and the other one is like to quote John Daly grip it and rip it um, I mean there's good chance that both oars or one oar will be out of the water most times you give it a swing at it you know especially when you're out in the Atlantic in the middle of the Atlantic you know it's just because the boats always at different angles and you're very reactive to what the conditions are doing to the boat so um, I suppose what I'm trying to say is that like you pick it up very quickly and watch it the, the enough 
the finesse or no finesse is the wrong word enough what you need to know um you pick it up within three hours and then you get better and better slowly you know and you realize that obviously technically it can help if you're technically more proficient it can help but like over the course of like 63 days um yeah it's it's not a huge it's not a something you put a massive amount of concentration into pre-row so what was a typical day like out on the ocean wet blue <laughs> um so the first two i'm sorry you couldn't swim either sure you couldn't no i can't swim no yeah, that's important to note there i remember that from before you can't swim no I wasn't planning plan on swimming, but uh, no, I can't swim yet. So someday, you, someday, definitely, I'll so learn. How did you clean the boat? Uh, you just tie on. Um, so basically, I was wearing a harness at all times okay. when I was on the boat, and then I just tie on the harness to these things called grab lines down the side of the boat. So it's three way, three way line. So there's two clips on the boat, one clip on me, and then I kind of just shuffle around, and the boat keeps moving. So you're just kind of getting pulled along, pulled along. Um, it's not that I can't like I can swim maybe like I, I can swim at, can like 20 meters yeah, and then it's sinking very quickly but um, it was I was I was apart from that first day when I sat on the side of the boat and checked those three clips were tight about 16 times each um, I was pretty comfortable after that once I got in the water um, but that was that plunge took a, took a little bit of courage I must say yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so come back and tell me what it was like a typical day out on out on the ocean. So, because um, we we can't understand, we can yeah. never understand what it's like to to do that. So I'll start with when I had steering because the two days are very different. So I lost my steer, complete system system steering failure on day seventeen. So before that, um, uh, a day looked something like I think I would get up around five, five or six in the morning and then I would row until um, about ten o'clock. Uh, roughly and then I take a break and have something to eat sorry before I started rowing I'd have a shake like a protein and carbohydrate shake with some creatine and then I would row for like the next kind of three to four hours and then I would take a break to have some breakfast um, I'd eat that for about half an hour and then I'd be back on the oars from kind of half ten to about half twelve two hours and then I'd take an hour off to have um, lunch and a bit of a break and then I'd row from uh, two o'clock, so say an hour, an hour and a half. So I'd two o'clock to four, um, and then I'd take another break for an hour, and that was kind of the hottest part of the day, around four, five, six. Um, so I'd take an hour off there and try and get some rest, and then I'd get back on the oars at um, five, and I'd row to nine o'clock, but I'd take a break around seven for like 30 minutes to have um, some dinner. Um, and these... When I say breakfast, lunch and dinner, all that means is just boiling up some water quickly, putting it in a bag of dehydrated stuff and, and scoffing it. Uh, and then around nine o'clock, I'd take another break for an hour. And I, I was kind of my, I really liked that break because I'd go in, I'd turn on the sat phone, I'd get some text messages. I might even make a phone call or receive a phone call. And then I'd come back out on the oars and um, I'd row until midnight. Um, and then... I'd make a kind of decision really based on the conditions. Um, if I'd row for another hour or two or, or get a nice block of sleep, which was at best six hours, and I'd row and I'd kind of get back up again at six. And when I lost my steering, the only thing that changed was the night time. So when I'd go in at nine and I'd, or yeah, nine, and I'd put on the sat phone, I'd come back out at 10. This, can, this got really um, dependent on conditions and what the moon was doing because... When I when I lost my steering system, I meant I had to steer with the oars. 
So when you steer with the oars, you're very reactionary to what the waves are doing and where you're placing the oars to compensate for the movement of the waves on the boat. So I would, um, if there was no moonlight, I couldn't see basically. I could just about see you. You're about a meter from me now. I couldn't see like two meters from me. You know, it was pitch black. Were you ever scared? Uh, not really. I, I was not not scared as such. No, there was, of course, there was, there was some times out there where it was very uh, hairy. Um, I got a double capsize one day. Um, uh, nearly got hit by a cargo ship another day. Um, so actually, that was pretty scary. The cargo ship part was pretty scary. Did right you ever think you were going to die? No, no, no. No, it's not. No. no. I think once the biggest factor and uh, like a question I always ask myself is what can stop me uh, achieving these things? And the biggest factor and the thing that could have stopped me was losing contact with the boat. So as long as I always had that harness and I was clipped into the boat, I always had one point of contact with the boat, even if the, something freak happened, you know, I always felt pretty secure. Like you could hang a car off that. There's a line called the jack stay, you know, that you clip into and you could, I mean, no matter how much as long as you're buying quality equipment, right? As, no matter how much kind of force the mother nature can throw up, you should be pretty safe. So I felt secure anyway at most times. But, um, so go back, sorry, go back to the steering then. So oh, yeah. So steer, you couldn't see at night, so you were... I couldn't see. So basically that just meant that uh, I couldn't, I didn't know where to place the oars. So I'd get it kind of right one time in like 10 or 20. I'd get the placement right just because I couldn't see where I was putting it. So when you don't get it right, those other 19 out of 20 times, you either get the the boat, um, sorry, the oar either kind of uh, rebounds badly either into your shin or um, into your quad or worst of all, you get the butt of it into your ribs. And there's only so long you can kind of sustain that. After about 25 minutes of that, you're like, oh, you know, screw this. Like, I'm, I'm just going to go in. And your cabin is right in front of you and the light is on and it looks nice and warm and you're cold and you're getting battered by these waves. Like, so it's very tempting, you know, and you're getting, then you get a few rib shots. You're like, oh, I'm just going to go in and sleep and, you know, call it a day and we'll get up and fight another day tomorrow. And yeah, I suppose that word there is what every day is. It's just a fight, fight, fight. You know, the ocean is just a monster. It just keeps knocking you down. You finally feel you're in a good position and then she'll throw something up that'll knock you down and you just have to find a way to drag yourself back up and continue the fight. But how do you physically and mentally prepare for that? Um, physically... Again, Please don't tell me you only rowed like a thousand meters. No, no, I rowed a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, because um, I kind of like rowing as well. So I do a lot of work on the indoor, um, the ergometer, the indoor rower. I actually compete on that, so um, it's something I have a kind of love-hate relationship with. So I did a lot of work on that, did all my kind of um, fast stuff on that, and it's very men mentally challenging as well, so you have to have some really good mental processes in place. So that relates really well back into what you do out in the ocean. And then I built up all my volume by just bringing the boat out on Galway Bay and just putting in the hours out there. So worked up from the first day I brought it out, um, I was probably just, oh, the first day I brought it up was down the Clada, um, and it was a bit of a disaster, actually. I didn't know what I was doing. I actually put the boat into the pier wall at one stage. <laughs> yeah, I know. I couldn't figure out because it was foot steering and uh, rowing at the same time. It's a bit like driving a car, you know, that when you're not used to it, those two concentrations are really hard to work. So, Had you ever been on the water like a a, a boatman before? No, I, no maritime or no, nothing. Like it's mad. Absolutely it's absolutely insane. 
Yeah, actually, that was one of the most challenging things of the whole thing, just trying to pick up the language around that uh, world, you know. I had no idea. I'll tell you a good story. I was out and uh, I went out to the start of the race the year Gavin did it in mm. 2016, 2017. And um, there was only 12 boats in that year's race. And I was I was standing between Gav's boat before they put them in the water. Gav's boat and a girl called um, Elaine from Scotland, who was another solo. And the two of them were chatting to each other. And I was there. I didn't have a scoobies what they were on about, you know. And Gav says to Elaine, she just got the hull of your boat, Elaine, didn't you? And then you did all the work on it. And I'm there thinking, I don't even know what a hull of a boat is here. Like, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, you know, it's very overwhelming at times, but I think if you know if it means enough to you, you figure out a way to to um or you you know you f- yeah you figure out a way to make it happen. So I kind of picked up all that on the way, but um that first day down the Clada was yeah I had to get two local fishermen to help me put the boat in the water. Um, the Oliver's down there and uh, yeah they were a great help but one of them came out in the boat with me and he ended up steering then in the end and I just ended up rowing because he can do hand steering as well in these boats. So uh, that was after me putting it into the pier head or the pier wall. <laughs> but uh, yeah, after that, then I built up my, I became more comfortable and, you know, you figure it out. And after I kind of built up to, I did a 25 hour um, row out to the Iron Island, slept out just before Inish Man, um, and then came back in um, one evening, uh, one night, sorry, and one morning. So that was the longest I did on, on the water. And that's kind of how I built up any volume. But to be honest, that's not really training. Like, the only thing you're training there is sitting down for 25 hours, really. Like, I mean... But what about the sores on your hands and your yeah, legs? I suppose I mean, how did you protect them or did you build up, like... You know the way you get a welt on your hand yeah. if you're doing a bit of gardening at home. But <laughs> yeah, I well. mean, if you're going to be rowing for 63 days, how yeah. do you... How do you protect your hands? So I, I'd be lucky enough. I'd have quite a few of those just from like deadlifting and chin-ups and that sort of stuff in the, um, I'd have some hard skin there and callus. So now that all that being said, they did rip off on day one uh, <laughs> of the of the row because kind of everything went wrong that could go wrong on day one. Um, and they were the first things to go. And then my heels tore, um, my blistered, sorry. And then I got seasick pretty bad. And then I got some sort of weird cramping, almost spasms in all my major muscle groups in my lower body. And that was just down to a mistake in my preparation. Basically, I, I, I tapered um, way too early in or way too yeah early in my uh, preparation. So I had this idea that like because it was eighteen months preparation, and I put a lot, a lot of um, value and time into that preparation. I felt like I needed a longer taper. So I had it penciled in for two weeks and then I went down and I competed in the Irish Indoor Rowing Championships and I did really well, um, you know, personally for myself. Um, and I kind of felt, listen, you're in a great place. I think I had like four days left in my training program or five days. And I was kind of going, what's the point in doing another five days? Why don't you just give yourself that, you know, little bit more of a window to recover before you take on the row? And then the so that meant I was up now to two weeks and five days and then the row got pa- pushed back two days because of weather conditions to start sorry so that meant three weeks without doing anything so basically I just my body had detrained mm. and gone a bit soft and then I took off out the blocks and if you imagine like something that's so important to you you have all the um that um, adrenaline and emotion of starting something I, you know I said goodbye to my parents and it was a big it's a big event you know that big crowds come off and see you out so it's you're absolutely pumped you know so I took off out the blocks and I was the last boat to leave and I 
tore out and I passed out about four bolts and I was flying it and then bang my body just started to shut down and, and those are the first things to go with the calluses um, and I, I did, couldn't work it out I, I was I, you know, I was questioning it and not finding any answers for ages because you know this my body is like the thing you know my whole adult life is the thing I've used to you know um, drive it and it's been my rock and then it goes wrong and I was just like what the hell's happening goes wrong at the worst possible time you know the big thing you've ever taken on so that was really really dark you know that time but um yeah so um i don't know how to answer your question about <laughs> how how do i how did i um build up sports resistance to those sort of things you know you just a bit of time on the oars helps um but after that i started after they goes calluses went i started using gloves after that for like i suppose the next at least a month if not five weeks and just to um give myself that layer of protection away from the, the wooden handles on the oars. And how did you pull yourself out of that dark place? So, believe it or not, things got worse after That's that. Stuff. Yeah, it was the, this is the, <laughs> uh, what would you say? This is, uh, this is the worst kind of uh, state I've ever found myself in mentally and physically. So, uh, well, after about six hours and all that physical stuff was going wrong, um, I had a bit of a dilemma because as the physical stuff was going wrong, the mother nature started to challenge me as well. And, and basically the winds and the currents got it pushed into the bow of the boat, into the front. So now from going about two knots, which is a, a steady, nice pace, um, I was going down to point, point three of a knot. So I literally crawling, I mean, into those headwinds, into those currents, those boats don't go very far fast, especially when you're a um, solo rower. So like with my body kind of just falling down around me and getting seasick and these spasms that like, I mean, quads, hammies and calves all spasming at the same time. You can't stretch one of them like so. I mean, and I you just, probably don't have the space to stretch them. No, and you're boat. on obviously an uneven surface <laughs> and you're a lot of chop at that stage getting away from the island. So yeah, it was crazy. So I, I kind of had to, so I made the decision anyway. So do I keep rowing? but not give myself a window to kind of um, recuperate or do I um, go into the cabin and try and get a, a bit of recovery, a bit of sleep, but maybe get blown back. So that's the decision I came to. So I, I gave myself 45 minutes on my alarm, um, went in, slept and got up and I'd seen been blown back a mile against those headwinds and those currents. So that was obviously a blow. It wasn't completely unexpected, but still, you like, I mean, you can still see the island there. Like, so... <laughs> um, it's not exactly encouraging yeah mm. um but i did feel slightly better like my the spasms didn't seem to be as severe and i felt i could row a little bit so i rowed and the plan i made was i'll row back to the waypoint i saw before i went to sleep now the waypoints are gps coordinates basically and that's how we plot our way across the ocean so i said i'll i'll row back and it was 42.2 kilometers to the next waypoint uh, sorry it was a marathon yeah exactly <laughs> nice easy number to remember and I said, uh, once I get there, uh, it'll be kind of the evening night of day one. And I'll put out a thing called a power anchor, which is a um, it's an anchor you use when the ground anchor and the sea is too deep and the ground anchor won't reach the bottom. It's a big parachute, sits out the front of the boat and holds about two tons of water in it. So that was the plan. So it took me three hours to make back up that mile I lost oh into those gosh. headwinds. And it was around nine or ten o'clock. And there's a lot of faff involved in the power anchor. There's 120 meters of retrieval line. There's 90 meters of line. So I finally got it out and kind of around 11 midnight and went to bed. Um, I went into the cabin. 
kind of, I suppose, ready to face another day and confident like tomorrow will be a better day. You'll hopefully have recuperated a little bit, got some composure back mentally and physically, and we'll we'll kick on from day two, right? We forget this nightmare. <laughs> so I um, did that, uh, went to sleep, woke up at five that morning, uh, looked at the GPS, I'd be blown back a mile and a half overnight. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So now like I was in all sorts of turmoil. There was quite a bit of chop outside. So I went outside and I was just trying to figure shit out. Could you and still I, see the island? Yeah, the yeah. Island? I mean, I could, yeah, no, I was still very, very close to that. So I remember leaning over the side of the boat and there's kind of waves coming over the side and you're getting soaked and you're pulling in this anchor. And I was just going, wow, what has happened? I just couldn't get any answers. I was incredibly negative, incredibly destructive thoughts. You know, you're thinking about all sorts of things that aren't helping you. And this is where the mental side of my training really helps, you know. So I feel I have really good awareness and awareness is a huge part of mental strength, right? So you have to be aware of your thoughts. If you're not aware of them, you can't change them. So my awareness kicks in, you know, you're you're incredibly negative and destructive. So I sat down on my the little seat on my boat and I asked myself three questions. So what are you here to do? Row the Atlantic. Okay, yeah. And how do you do that? Well, you fucking row. And like, what good is another second hour day you know, minute spent here feeling sorry for yourself, lamenting your misfortunes and your mistakes in preparation, you know, with the goal of rowing the Atlantic and the answer was none. So I just rode, I rode and rode into those headwinds. I rode for seven hours straight, took an hour off and then I rode for another seven hours. And finally at about 6 p.m. on the evening of day two, the winds shifted into my stern, into the back of my boat and started to push me away. And my race was finally on. And I only made 10 miles in that 15 hours period, 14 of which I rode. Um, to give you context, I, um, if I was in the middle of the ocean and I rode for 14 hours and 15, I'd make probably 50 miles. Wow. So that's how slow I was going. But I just kept controlling what I could control, which was rowing, row, row, row. And uh, yeah, finally I got started to get pushed away from the islands. And um, yeah, and then in hindsight, that that awareness period, having the awareness of being negative and asking myself those three questions saved my race because um, there was two other solos in the exact same position as me going forward, getting blown back, going forward, getting blown back, going forward, getting blown back. And um, they didn't get up on the morning day too. Well, they did, but they didn't row for 14 of the next 15 hours. I don't know how long they rowed, um, but they never got away from the island. They got pulled back in after day three, day two and day three by local fishermen. Or oh, the, wow. the, Yeah, so their races, in one case, one guy put like two years work into it, was gone in uh, the matter of 72 hours. So, yeah, he, I chatted to him afterwards and he says the most soul-destroying period of his life. You know, he, just, he said he jettisoned everything off the, the boat to try and be able his boat was a bit heavier than mine in fairness to him um he jettisoned like literally everything he could spare to get rid to get to get the boat lighter so he could row into those headwinds but he just he said he couldn't do it so yeah so you know it's amazing like you know when when i look back on my uh, preparation period um having put myself in all those really dark spots on the ergometer uh, on the watt bike whatever it may be like that all came back in that moment, that practice and those processes and those questioning and being aware of my thoughts in really tough times came back to save some the biggest thing I've ever taken on, you know. Other than crossing the finish line of the race, what was the highlight over the 63 days? 
so stra- a bit strange with, with Ocean Rowing because like the what you might consider low lights are uh, uh, kind of looking back or the highlights, you know. So the double the day I double capsized. It's <laughs> <laughs> a highlight. Yeah, it's a highlight. Yeah, um, it, that was day fourteen. It was like the craziest day of my life because. In between the two capsizes, the first one of which I was asleep in the cabin and I the first I knew about it was when I was like catapulted at I don't know what sort of speed into the side of the cabin, splitting my head open and as the boat's going around 360 degrees, you know, so imagine that you're trying to figure out how, what's this pain, why I've been woken up, what's this liquid running down my face uh, and you're in a tumble dryer at the same time, you know. <laughs> um, and then I went out on deck and the whole, the, literally every cubic centimetre of the deck was covered in water. So I was like panicking going, is this going to sink the boat? And I was like bucketing stuff off and I had the, the bilge pump on, which which gets that water off as well. So uh, I'm sitting there and I'm kind of a little bit in shock, I suppose. And then I you're super hypersensitive out there to anything different. And I hear this noise, which I had never heard before. So I was on it like a shot and I look over to my right and I see a dorsal fin of a whale. Oh, mother of God. Yeah. <laughs> and it, the whale, now it was only a little adolescent whale, but a, a minky whale, I think it was. Because, yeah. And um, it came around the boat, um, circled the boat about five times and, and then on like fourth or fifth rotation, it stuck its left eye in the air and made eye contact with me. I know, yeah. I was like, nobody, nobody's going to believe this. <laughs> um, and then a few hours after that, I, I kept thinking, because it was in a big storm. We were in 10 meter waves this day. Like, that's why I was capsized earlier and why I went over again. So, like, nine 10 meter waves. So, all day, I'm properly on the uh, edge of my seat, for want of a better expression, just survival mode, survival mode. I kept thinking I'd saw the. Like the whale was following me and trying to communicate with me in some way. I, I don't know. This is what I was telling Maybe myself. Anyway. Huh? Maybe he was minding Yeah, yeah. You know, it's amazing what you kind of, the stories you tell yourself out there. Uh, and then I, I went over again later on that afternoon when I was standing up on the boat and I ended up just grabbing a handle behind my back instinctively because uh, I knew the wave was, I was just on, a, the boat was on a bad place on the wave and I was on the face of the wave just underneath the break and I was on a bad place on the boat so I just grabbed the handle and I went in the water and I literally hung on with one hand the whole way under the water at the whole 180 degrees until the boat self-righted which these boats are designed to do and came kind of flat back on my back on the on the floor the on the um, open rowing deck very 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 relieved person yeah you're not enticing me to, to look at the, the whiskey challenge as something that we might do. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, I don't know how that could have been a highlight, obviously, except for the fact that you were alive at mm. the end of it uh, and getting to meet. Did you name the, the whale? Did you give him a name? No, I never no. saw him again after that. I never saw. I saw I had pods of dolphins after that and a couple of sea turtles and like loads of bird life um, who I'd often have conversations with. I'm not afraid to say. Um but uh, I never saw the whale again, unfortunately. I think I saw a tiger shark as well, uh, close to the Caribbean. Just, just uh, whatever way I was surfing down a wave, and the w- the sun was shining over my shoulder, and it just hit the water beside me, and just saw this enormous shadow, like bigger than the boat, which is seven meters um, underneath the water. And it wasn't until afterwards I was like, "Wow, what was that? Unreal!" And then it wasn't until afterwards I kind of realized that was probably a tiger shark or a shark, anyway. So. <laughs> and you mentioned the sun quite a bit as well. So how do you protect your skin from the sun? I mean, sun cream obviously doesn't do the job out there, does it? Uh, well, it would do, but. It if you had somebody to put it on areas you can't reach so uh, (laughs) 
didn't so, put like a sheepskin rug on the bottom like Gavin Hennigan did. On no, I really regretted that. I yeah. got really, really bad um, sea sores and pressure sores. So uh, that was probably one of the hardest parts of the whole thing, trying to deal with them and, you know, thinking how long have I left here? You know, you've thousands of miles left in, in when they first started to get really bad. And you just kept thinking they're just going to get worse and worse and worse. So that was a mistake of mine. I've made many mistakes, but listen, um, that's one I won't make again if I do do another ocean row. Uh, how do you break down the distance? I mean, it's one thing to do six marathons in six days. You can break each race down into smaller parts and then each day becomes another little bigger part. But with ocean rowing, you've thousands of kilometres to cover. How mm. do you take a chunk out of the elephant? <sighs> I, I didn't do it this way, um, but I've heard people break it down into thirds, like 900, because it's 2,700 nautical miles. So they break it down into 900, 900, is that, that's it? Yeah, 900, 900, 900 miles. But um, I suppose my first part, so you get sent these um, waypoints by your weather router. So I had a guy back in Scotland looking at about eight weather eight weather systems and trying to decipher by my little quadrant what would be the best direction to row in due to winds and waves and that. So he sends me these things called waypoints and they're basically um, GPS coordinates, like I said earlier. Now, the first one was grand. It was only like 50 kilometers. But then I think the next one he sent me was like 300 and the one after that was 1300 nautical miles. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's pretty hard to break that down. Like, so I, do you know what? For me, I just try and be as present as possible. Now, it's a constant battle. This like it's uh, the ideal scenario is you're, you know, absolutely present and concentrating on your effort or your technique or your talk or your um, breath but unless you're some sort of Hindu or Buddhist monk like that's just not going to be sustainable so what happens is you do become outcome oriented and you do start thinking about well how long did I row today how long is left so basically every day then I just started writing down how much how much I rowed that day and then kind of trying to add it up and it's a constant mental battle because that is not um, the perfect mental state to be in that adds pressure that you don't really need but it's the most human thing we do so the battle is between kind of redirecting from becoming outcome oriented you know coming concentrated on the numbers back to being present you lose that concentration you go back to the numbers and then you're constantly fighting to get back and it's just a constant constant battle and um the better you can become at staying in that present moment and concentrated on something um the easier it is mentally but it's it's not so easy so I, i've heard some people talk about um uh just going into a daydreaming state as well that they find that quite good or you know i often did uh sang believe it or not Are just i'm absolutely atrocious and i don't even know what i was singing about i just start i start singing about my day like literally what i've done you know just something like anything because i had no uh <sighs> I started having battery power problems and then I couldn't put on my music so okay. and I couldn't listen to any sort of podcasts or anything like that so it was just me that was it just me with me so sometimes you had there's only so much you can kind of put up with those voices in your head and yourself so sometimes you have to get out of that state so singing about anything or just talking to birds <laughs> If somebody had seen me, they probably thought I somebody lost recorded it. He's absolutely quite lost interesting it. podcast recording yeah. it going the whole way across. Um, talk to me about the last few hours before you got to the finish line and then that celebration on the finish line. Did you ever think you'd see it? Oh, 
I I think I always okay. There was times where it was you know the last thing I was thinking about was the finish. I was thinking about fighting every day, fighting, fighting. But like so the. First thing I saw was 35 miles, nautical miles from the finish. That night, I could see the lights from the island, which was Antigua, where I was trying to finish. So, obviously, that was huge, you know. Um, and then, uh, I can't remember, did I? I, I think I, I was trying to work out the time I would, yeah, that's right. I was trying to work out the timing of the day I would finish, you know, so... I knew if I put down the hammer, I'd probably finish in daylight. So I rolled quite a bit into that night and then I slept a little bit and got up the next day and obviously it was a bit closer. And then I remember from like about 25, 20, 20 miles, I think you can, during the day you can see land, you know, so that's when I first could see it. Uh, and the next 12 hours, like that land seemed to get no closer. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's just, it was going, it was getting, I was like, am I, am I going anywhere here? What's happening? Like... <laughs> Uh, finally, it starts to get a bit bigger and a bit bigger, which is a nice bit of encouragement. And eventually, um, yeah, you get pretty close. And then I actually, all I could see was, um, as I got close to the island, was these waves smashing on these seawalls, you know. And I had all sorts of... Um, Your steering was gone at this stage. Steering was gone, but it, also yeah. was also was all the power in, in my um, sat phone. I lost my two sat phones to really bad weather. And um, I didn't really know the process, the finish process, because you kind of come in from the north of the island. You have to swing around to the south and kind of go into a harbour called um, uh, Nelson's Dockyard. So I was kind of panicking about that, like, you know, and the last I talked to one of the um, Coast Guard guys, he was telling me, just go to this waypoint. But the waypoint they were showing me was on land, like, so I was like, well, I'm not, there's no way I'm coming, I've come 3,000 nautical miles to put the boat onto the seawall, like, and ruin this whole thing, you know. So I stayed out quite a bit from the island. You know, unbeknownst to me, I didn't know that, like, if I stayed out too far, I'd be pushed past the island. I couldn't get back far enough north, oh, you know, right, okay. against the current. So... Uh, thankfully they send out uh, the Coast Guard send out a rib uh, to guide you in but they couldn't find me because I was so far out for a while <laughs> eventually they find me and they say mate you have to row due north so the next 25 minutes was me putting down the hammer properly rowing as hard as I could against not against the currents but if I'd gone any further south I would have been in trouble and eventually I got into close enough to the seawall and um uh, and then I was safe and then I just kind of came around into the harbour and then you eventually f crossed the finish line and this big flotilla of uh, locals and anyone who's kind of been following the race come out and all sorts of things like from pedlos to stand-up surfboards to, you know, ribs to anything and they kind of follow you in. And then there's an official finish line where you've rode the Atlantic and then you have another kind of 15-minute row or 10 minute row into the harbour, into the dock where like there's a kind of big event and your family are waiting and um, it's a big crowd, a little crowd, but it's nice, really, really nice. And you go through this harbour and of course, now remember I haven't seen Enton, I'm in a completely disheveled state. I lost 28 kilos at this stage, big beard, tan in my life, um, but like I look like uh, your man from Castaway, Tom Hanks. <laughs> and I haven't seen really anything much but bar horizon and a bit of bird life for like 63 days. And then you row into this harbour and all there is is like million and billion dollar boats, you know, um, proper playground of the rich and famous. And they're all, they all come out on their, all the crews of those come out onto deck and the captains blow the horn, somebody blows oh, the wow. horns. So you have all this, it's completely overwhelming, you you know, uh, and you're like, well, I'm, you know, it's bizarre. Um, but then you get in. And I saw, um, obviously, saw my family there um, on the dock before I 
got off and I saw Andrew, my brother, who wasn't meant to be there. So I was completely, uh, I suppose, overtaken by the emotion of it all and seeing how much it meant to them uh, was, yeah, just uh, class. What a what a kind of experience and memories we made, you know, just as a family, just over that little period of time, you know, the arrival and then the next kind of week together in Antigua, you know, I was said recently to someone... <clears throat> I never told people I loved them as much in all my life over those next few days, you know, because you're just so, you don't give a crap, like you've just gone through the ringer, you know, I mean, it's like everything, all your layers are stripped away and you're just a different person for a little while. Unfortunately, doesn't that state doesn't stick around <laughs> too long, but there's a little bit of it inside you anyway. You've experienced it and lived it, you know. Probably giving them a few more hugs every time oh, you see them you instead of telling them we love them. Sure, it's the same thing, really, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, you, you said, uh, I've seen somewhere where you said it was a hell of an experience, hell of an adventure and a hell of a challenge. It was exactly what I wanted from the challenge. I wanted to be pushed to my limits mentally and physically and I sure got what I wanted mm. and then some. Would you do it again? Yeah, sure. I'm actually planning <laughs> planning to do another one um, for 2021. Uh, one back here from New York to Galway. But not alone this time. I want to put together a boat of uh, either uh, four Galwegians or two Galwegians um, uh, or Irishmen, you know, we'll see. I just, I've done the solo adventure and it was amazing, but... I saw, um, when I did it, you know, I saw kind of those teams as well. And it's probably something that I couldn't get from the experience, you know. So that's, that's I would love to have that challenge with other people and share that experience. And, you know, all the different dynamics that that brings, good and bad. Yeah, that'd be some incredible uh, spin back from New York to to the Aran Islands or to Galway would you come into Black Rock into I'd love Galway? to I'd love to come into Galway into, into the Galway. docks imagine yeah, amazing. and get you know maybe get the whole town if not the whole country following it and um, has it ever been done before it's only been done five times as in by pairs by two man it's been done a bit more by four man boats um, but it's much much less um, it's a much less trodden uh, ocean Pass. path because of um the extremes of it it's very it's so the big change of course is in the southern Atlantic the one I already did it's warm most mm. of the time up there it's cold yeah. and that's a big big challenge and then getting away from uh, North America is quite challenging you go through the place called uh, uh, Grand Banks which is you know big fishing uh, area very foggy so there's power issues so there, there's, there's different challenges to it but I just think you know there's not many people um, situated in the world that you can actually row into your hometown. And since I, I suppose I am an ocean rower now, I might as well. Um, was that a label you put on yourself there? Was well, it? I've actually done that. So I'm <laughs> kind of comfortable taking that label. <laughs> <laughs> Before we finish up, I have a few more minutes left because, you know, you weren't happy to just do the Martha de Sable and then row the ocean. You've now decided you're going to complete the seven peaks, the seven summits. Mm. So you've already done Anaconga, Denali, Kilimanjaro, Elbrus and Punkakiaia, if that's how you pronounce it. So you have Vinson and Everest mm. left to do. I mean, what is going on? <laughs> do, you not, do you not rest at all? I mean, life, life is ticking away, you know. I know, but I'm not gonna, like, would you not take a break for a couple of weeks or maybe a year and just chill out and have the crack? Um, not Definitely not for a year anyway. But I do, like, every time I come off one of these mountains, like, for example, I just came off, um, you called it Punka Yaya, I, I call it Karsten's Pyramids, the same thing. But you like the traditional uh, 
indigenous name I like that but um, you know I, I took four three weeks after that I took in Indonesia and Cambodia you know just to kind of I felt like the last kind of year pursuing these mountains was like really intense uh, so I just felt like I needed a little bit of a break so I just kind of decompressed there and, and gave myself a little bit of space and freedom to, to think um, and then came back you know with, with Everest uh, firmly in my targets uh, for next year So you went to spend five weeks travelling around the Caribbean because you needed some alone time yeah, I, that's right. <laughs> well, alone time. I just need. I felt like I needed to process the whole role and what I went through. Now I was completely delusional to think that I could do it in that time. But um, it was nice, kind of uh, a nice uh, period of time to give myself some self reflection and you know also see some new countries. Because you know coming back to that list I mentioned at the time, one of the one of my. Um, Another one of my goals is to visit every country, well, a lifetime goal is to visit every country in the world. So it was a nice kind of um, add-on that I could kind of get to five or six different Caribbean countries while I was there and um, use that time to kind of just analyze and reflect and try and process what I'd been through. But uh, yeah, so I, I do take little periods off after these kind of um, adventures, but I, I'm, I'm very conscious that, um, I'm also very conscious that like I'm, I, I absolutely love preparing for these and I love the, um, that period as well. So I'm always trying to get back into, you know, preparing for something it gives me great direction and, and drive towards something, you know, in life. So uh, yeah, so then I came... Um, so off the back of that, yeah, I have five of my seven, the seven summits done. I did Kilimanjaro actually way back in when I was still playing rugby in 2013. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm counting that. I got to the summit. It was, it was hard enough the first time, so I'm not going back again. Mm. And then in the last 13 months, I got Elberis, Aconcagua, uh, Denali and uh, Carson's Pyramid or Puntijanka uh, done. So um delighted, you know, um, Two of those mountains, Denali and Aconcagua, are, are notoriously um, fickle with weather. And, you know, you could go back two or three years in a row and not get up either of them, you know. So for me to get up both of them with inside, I did one in January and one in May, was massive, you know. Because, you know, if Mother Nature doesn't want you to get to the top, you're not mm. getting to the top no matter who you are. So, so that was great. I think a whole other podcast we can do on your seven summits. Uh, Quite possibly, yeah. When you're done. So... <laughs> You've put uh, Vincent on the back foot for the moment and are going straight for Everest. Yeah, the, the original plan was Vincent to, to do in January 2020 and then finish with Everest um, April, May 2020. But I've had to drop Vincent now because uh, these things are just really, really expensive, you know, and I've already poured quite a lot of my own money into the, the previous four mountains, uh, five really. Um, and uh, now we get to the two. There's a reason these two are left to the end is because they're super expensive. They're around the same price each. So I can't afford that at the moment. So I'm, I've dropped uh, Vincent and just giving myself seven months to kind of try and bring Everest together and Everest is like a kind of 50 grand price tag as well so yeah it's tough going uh, that side of things the, Are the, you self-funded completely? Have you any sponsors? I have It's I, up until now I've been so self-funded but I'm out there at the moment trying to bring in make some sponsors and partnerships for for Everest you know um, and for, for Seven Summits generally um, yeah, it's tough work but um, you know it's a challenge as well and I, I kind of enjoy the challenge even though we haven't been hasn't been hugely successful yet in bringing in any sponsors but um, yeah like we'll keep working away on it and you know I think there's great personally 
of course I do think this, but I think there's great value there for partnerships and for sponsors, you know, and I, I think it's only a matter of time before we, we bring in some. And if somebody wants to um, to support your seven summits, where, where can they find out more information about what you're doing? Um, the best place is DamienBrown.com. It's my website and... Um, it, uh, it's been redeveloped actually at the moment and it should be live this week, the new version, the redeveloped version. So there'll be loads of information on there about all the values in our sponsorship packages and me generally and what I've done in the past. And yeah, so that's the best place, DamienBrown.com. And aside from all of the adventures, of course, you're back on the rugby pitch mm. with the Galwegians. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, Post rugby, I decided to take like two years off. It ended up kind of been three years away from rugby. I just needed to do something else and refresh. It'd been so intense for like, well, 16 plus years. So last year I went back coaching and this year I'm back in my actual club. That's kind of where I started, Galwegians up with the under 18 and a half. And uh, yeah, it's going great. We've only, we're only together. Well, I'm only together with the group like about four and a half weeks now, but we've won our first match, which is a good start. And um, I love it. I absolutely love it. I think this, it's really an important um, age grade and it's really important for me to kind of um, translate or teach them some of the stuff I've learned over my life, not just through rugby, but adventures and just generally in life. So, you know, I think you can you can pass on a lot of valuable stuff to them at a really uh, good age. So, yeah, it's been it's been great so far. Who's been the biggest influence in your life to date, Damien, do you think? So I had a coach, um, uh, firstly, when I kind of came out of school and went into rugby, pro rugby, called John Kingston. Um, he was actually the coach of Galwegians at the time and this was when Connacht Rugby wasn't uh, I was with Connacht Rugby but it was only like for half the season and then you spend half the season with your club so we had a lot of time with our club coaches and club rugby AL rugby at that time was really really big and he had a huge huge impact on me you know I was 18, 19 the two years he was there and he was actually coming from a professional environment with Richmond in the UK and I don't, I can't remember how he ended up in Galway but something happened in Richmond uh, the club folded financial pressures and I think he just needed a break from from he's, uh, he's an Englishman a uh, London guy originally and he just needed a break from London so he decided to come to the west of Ireland for a couple of years smart man I think we'll all agree mm. and um, yeah he had a massive impact on me he just taught me the value of hard work and commitment and taking responsibility and ownership of your own shit and um, yeah and I think those lessons are invaluable like looking back and you know reflecting on, on where I've got to you know is there'd be big questions would I be where I'm at if it hadn't been for him you know so Are you proud of what you've achieved? Sure yeah I think um, I'm proud of the person I've become um, I feel very uh, at ease and content in myself and I've become that way by constantly pushing myself, pushing myself towards things that scare me, make me uncomfortable. Um, and I think that requires some good values, you know, and when you're doing that, you're constantly sharpening those values because values dull is, you know, no matter what type of person you are. So I like to try and keep mine sharp. So, yeah, I'm I'm proud of that. Um and that's why I kind of, I think those, that pride is a healthy pride. So that's why I keep pushing towards these things because I, I know how far I've come and what it means to me and what it's done to me. And it'll keep doing that going forward. Well, Damien, I'm delighted you joined us here today and uh, took some time out from your 
your own busy life uh, to come and join us on the show. It's surely been very, very insightful. And I know we didn't really touch on the seven summits because we kind of ran over time a good bit. But I definitely want to get you back in studio and uh, I want to have a chat about that because I think there's a whole other side that we haven't even heard about yet. um, And that will be of huge interest to to listeners from all over the world. Um, Huge thanks to Galway Bay FM for the use of their studio to record this episode. And thanks again to everybody for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, please take a minute or two to give us a review on Apple Podcasts and on the Facebook page, Try Talking Sport. For more information and to check out our previous episodes, log on to www.trytalkingsport.com. You can also subscribe for free across all podcast platforms. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.